10 today. Um, every week we open up the scriptures because we believe that God speaks to us through them and that they help us learn to follow God, learn to follow Jesus. We were supposed to be done with our mini-series on spiritual warfare last week. We did six weeks through the last chapter of Ephesians that is all about the reality of not only Jesus and the Lord in the midst of the unseen realm, but the reality of the evil one of Satan, demons in the unseen realm. Um, the whole book of Ephesians is about how do we live with God in his kingdom that the gospel good news tells us is here and that all of us can enter into it. Well, when we enter into it very far, we realize God's not the only one that we can't see in the unseen realm. Um, Satan and demons are real, and we have to deal with that if we want to honestly follow Jesus. He dealt with them more than anybody else when we read the gospel accounts. A part of the kingdom of God coming to a people and a place is the reality of healing bodies and delivering freedom for souls. Okay? And often they're interconnected. So we finished last week, and I felt something in my gut. It didn't feel complete. Um, and I think what it was is the fact that I haven't just laid before us as a church family the authority that we have in Jesus as his people. He is the king of the kingdom that is preeminent over all. And we as his followers have his authority over Satan and demons. Practically, what does it look like to do spiritual warfare, battle and deliverance in a kind of everyday, really simple way that each one of you can do if you are in Christ? Okay, So this will feel a little more topical. This will feel a little bit more like you should take some notes down because it's very simple, but it's also very specific. Um, so that we could actually take up what we have in Christ. Sound good? I know some of you are like, whoa, first week here, that's weird. I want to just reassure you that we're not, uh, we're not like the devil's under every rock and problem in our life. Um, but I want to also point you to the fact that maybe, maybe if this is true, it explains where there's a lot of mystery, even in the world around us. I mean, if you've ever dealt with something like food allergies or immune system issues like I have, and you go to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they're like, I don't know how to help you. Or you go to counselor after counselor after counselor, and they're like, I don't know how to help you. Even clinical professionals realize that there is so much mystery in our world and in our humanness. And scripture says, this is a large part of what works under the surface. What we can't do is make out the devil and demons to be everything, but we also can't make out that they're nothing. We need to enter into the tension of wisdom that says, huh, our bodies, our minds, our relationships, our stories, and the tangible evil in the world all contribute. Okay? So hopefully I'm going to do some justice for us um, in the midst of this journey. Others of you are like, you feel like you have the gift of discerning of spirits that is an explicit spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 12. And you've been like, I feel as though I can sense things, but you haven't known how to use it. Hopefully this is helpful as you're seeing like, oh, that's how I can actually use this gift to build up the body and see freedom for my brothers and sisters. So today I want to walk really plainly through how to identify what the scriptures call demonization and the basic steps for deliverance from their power. I know that there's a lot of caricature that Hollywood and 
um, people that follow Jesus or that have ministries about deliverance make out to be everything and make it into this scary, crazy kind of thing. We want to have an even keel but open-eyed understanding of how to engage the spiritual realm. I'm sorry, moms, that this is the teaching (laughs) for Mother's Day. There is no way around it, all right? Um, Quickly, remember our preamble for this series on spiritual warfare. The first one is Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom he brought, is a real kingdom with real authority over all things, including Satan and demons, okay? It's not a figurative thing. It's not a thing for the future when we die so that we can go to be with him. Second thing, it's not immaturity to be aware of spiritual warfare in your life. It's actually maturity. What Satan and demons want is to remain unnoticed. And if we've followed Jesus for a long time and never identified spiritual warfare in our life, it's either that we're oblivious to it or maybe we're not actually that much of a threat to him and his kingdom. We aren't opening our mouths to talk about him. We aren't walking in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. The invitation is to step into the reality of the kingdom and humility to say, it's maturity to be aware of the work of the enemy in our life. The third thing is we do not fear Satan or demons. We fear sin. We're going to see today that is their power. That is us participating with their work. Okay? So let's open the scriptures now. Would you stand with me as we read God's word and submit ourselves beneath it? We're going to be reading from Luke 10, two chunks, verses 1 through 11 and verses 17 through 20. After this, uh, the Lord Jesus appointed 72 others. And he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. And then 17 through 20, this is after they all come back. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from, light, fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. you please pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you are alive and present with us right now. Thank you that you have ascended to the throne of the cosmos that you rule in the world, your kingdom is here, and that you intend to give every one of your followers 
by virtue of being seated with you in the heavenly places, your delegated authority. Please expose the work of Satan and demons among us, even within our lives. We pray that you would bring freedom, uh, that you would help our minds to understand the reality of the authority you've given and how we can steward it. That you and your freedom, the freedom of your kingdom, the healing of your kingdom would come upon our church and upon our city. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So hopefully what strikes you in this passage are the instructions of Jesus, the 72, who, note really importantly, are not the 12 apostles. In fact, we don't even know if the 12 apostles were in their number. It's unclear. 72 other followers who had taken up the path of following Jesus He sends them out in pairs and he gives them instruction. Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. Okay? In Matthew's gospel, I believe, he says, and cast out demons. He adds to that. He does not, this is an important note, give them an education in how to heal the sick or how to cast out demons. This is very interesting. And it's telling because here's the thing. Jesus' authority is real It's a part of the the declaration of the gospel that the kingdom of God has come and that the power of the enemy, the kingdom of the enemy, does not have ultimate authority. So what we don't need is some engineering type mind or some medical education so that we can wield his authority. Lord, we pray for Amma. Help her, comfort her. Um, So they go out. And they return, and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, just imagine the fear of going out without Jesus, total strangers, and seeing that his word proves true through you. And they return, and they're baffled. And Jesus has a really interesting affirmation. He says, Everything is subject to you in my name. Serpents and scorpions, that's an allusion to the, the power of the devil, of the, of the evil one. Devil is not a proper term, name. It, there's not the devil. It's a broad name for the accuser. And so when we say devil, it just means like evil spirits. Um, demons mean demigod in the original Greek. It's just, it's just a spiritual being that is beneath God, specifically that is opposed to God. And so Jesus says, in me, my kingdom is here. You have authority over these evil spirits and over all of their power. Here's here's the reality for us. If we take Jesus' claims seriously, that the kingdom is here, and that anyone can enter into it through Jesus and experience new life now, though we know ultimately we need to wait for Jesus to bring heaven and earth together at his second coming, It's imperfect but real. People can be healed. Um, People can be freed from the effect and bondage of Satan and demons. Now you should be asking, what the heck does that look like if it's real? That's what we're going to get into in a moment. But what I've found in the church, especially in an intellectual context, 
is we allow the questions and some of the cynicism of ways that we've seen it done poorly allow us to dismiss it altogether. Um, I stand here as someone who is healed through prayer for healing with a prayer that was simply this. Lord Jesus, thank you for the authority to uh, pronounce healing over bodies. We don't understand entirely how this works, but in the name of Jesus, stomach and immune system be healed in Jesus' name. I felt something move in my gut. I'd had 50 or more food allergies. It was debilitating. It was ruining my life. And I started eating things that I should not have been able to eat and found that 90% of the experience that I had prior was gone. I now have a very small portion of the remaining kind of managing my immune system stuff with food allergies. I'll call that healing any day of the week. So someone simply pronounces healing in the name of Jesus by faith, and I experienced healing. We have taken up this paradigm to, to, to heal or pray for healing for people, and we've seen people healed. And it's not sophisticated. We want it to be sophisticated, right? We feel like there's some secret thing that we need to learn so that then we can feel really accomplished or unique. When in reality, it's faith like a child to speak healing over people, knowing that if they're not healed, it was up to God. Our job was to go out and to do it in faithfulness. Here's why the healing part matters. Broken bodies are oftentimes affliction from the devil. There's qualifications in there. Not always. Okay, Not saying always. But we see in the Gospels very clearly that there are spirits that produce certain afflictions. There was a spirit that caused a woman to be hunched over for years of her life. And when Jesus sent out the demon, she was healed. There was a little boy who would be thrown into episodes and seizures that would throw him into the fire or into water seeking to kill him. And Jesus sent out a demon that was producing it, and he was healed. If we want to read our Bibles with any trust in the authority of Scripture and their truthfulness, we need to get over the discomfort that spiritual realities are oftentimes behind physical, mental, and emotional ones. That doesn't mean it's simple or easy to understand. So I'm not going to tell you that. But we need to be able to say, okay, we, as we pray and seek to actually take up the gifts of the Spirit, we will be opposed by dark spirits, by evil spirits. And that's what we've seen. Um, in the last 15 years of ministry, I've seen dozens of instances where overt, obvious spiritual warfare, there is a kind of spiritual warfare that's just temptation that you succumb to and you sin. That's a kind of spiritual warfare. But the kind of spiritual warfare that's more debilitating and manifesting, whether mentally or physically, seen dozens of times and most of it in the last five years as we as a church have sought to engage in prayer for healing and the spiritual gifts. Right? And here's the other thing. Almost always, I've seen it manifested in the life of believers, not unbelievers. Um, I need to say quickly here, too, some of you may have heard the delineation between, you know, um, Christians can be oppressed but not possessed. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so you can actually be oppressed or possessed. 
it's unhelpful in some ways because that's not language from Scripture. As much as we can, we want to stick to categories that are clearly laid out in Scripture so they don't bring in our own assumptions that leave us in ignorance. The word in Scripture that speaks about the way that demons have influence in the lives of people is, is just a word that means demonized. The person was demonized. Okay? The theology behind oppressed and possessed isn't quite great anyway because even though you might have the Holy Spirit, um, you might be walking far from God and have the Spirit in your big toe and not filled with the Spirit, leaving room for other spirits to come in and affect you. And the whole indwelt versus outside of you thing probably isn't helpful either because uh, we're material beings. Spirits can pass right through you. It's, it's not like we're a container that's impermeable. We are like a pumice stone. We can be permeated by various spirits. It's why when you walk into a room and you feel something and you can't explain it, that's your spirit sensing something. So demonization is a spectrum. From temptation on the, the less severe side to control in people like we see sometimes around us or we certainly see in Scripture. And the variance in the spectrum in the middle is where everyday life is happening. Okay? So with that, how can we see that spiritual warfare and deliverance is incredibly simple and unscary? Okay, first, our authority is the authority of Jesus delegated to us not our authority or our maturity that earned it. So the minute someone comes to Jesus in faith, they are connected into, this is where the language of Christ's body comes in, you are connected to Christ as your head, with him as authority, you instantly have the authority of Jesus. You might not understand how to wield it, just like, you know, a, a Three-year-old might be lined up to inherit something very expansive, but not have any idea how to wield it yet, okay? We don't need to earn or merit the authority simply to walk in it. So, when we say to someone, in the name of Jesus, be healed, there is authority in that. There's complexity about what happens after it. It's not simply, oh, well, you didn't have enough faith, so you weren't healed. We'll dive into just a little bit that we can today about that. But there is meaningful authority in speaking the name of Jesus. Secondly, after our authority is the authority of Jesus, deliverance, deliverance is simple, not complicated. It is simple, not complicated. Satan and demons have been defeated by Jesus on the cross. That's what Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says. That the, the enemy was defeated by the cross. That the enemy has been shamed publicly by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Same passage says that the enemy was put to open shame. So the enemy wants to hide and not be identified and resisted. Right? It's simple. The enemy is Weak in the way of comparison to Jesus. Um, deliverance is as simple as see, listen, and speak. See, listen, and speak. That's going to shape the rest of our talk today. So, though demons are invisible most of the time, they have real, tangible effects that can be seen. And this is where we need to identify that we've been shaped by our materialistic 
uh, worldview that says all that is real is what can be seen and tested with the scientific method. Science is a gift that's very helpful. Even a scientist worth their salt would be able to tell you science cannot tell you everything. Science can't tell you, for instance, what is morally good. You can just identify what does certain things, right? Similarly, our spirituality um, has effect on our physical reality. So we see behaviors and beliefs manifested in our everyday life that undermine our faith or health. So the young man who is always joking and can never be serious, right? Might be a lot of causes underneath it. But I've peeled back layers with friends who seem to never be able to be serious. And there's a massive amount of insecurity and uh, um, um, insecurity and covering with humor things that are weighty. The old man who gets angry whenever someone disagrees with him. The young person who needs the attention of a significant other in order to feel worthy. The man or woman who lives in perpetual feelings of emptiness and comforts themselves with eating. The church leader who is harsh with people in order to get them to do what they want others to do. As you see these behaviors that are persistent, not always, sometimes it's just ignorance, okay? We want to temper this without absolutes. But we want to say, oftentimes, even most of the time, if we simply ask some questions and begin to listen, we observe things that are beneath what we can see. So, as we see these things, especially addiction, especially things that um, are refusal to believe what God has clearly said in Scripture, we can then move from seeing to listening. That means relationally, horizontally, when we start to engage one another in community, hey, like, what's, can I ask what's going on here? In like full of compassion and non-judgmentalism. And as they start to tell us what their experience is, we're listening to them. And then we can compassionately say, I don't think the Lord wants this for you. Can we talk to him? And listen to the Spirit and see what the Spirit might reveal going on in your life in this. Notice there's no accusation of demonization going on in the midst of it. We're not assuming it must be demonic. Okay? We begin to listen as we engage in um, community together. Then we speak. So sometimes what we hear is our conscience accusing us of sin. It is a very good gift that God convicts us of sin because sin leads us away from him and all the blessing of him and into darkness where the enemy rules. Your conscience is a gift. That's why scripture says it is a blessed thing to live with a clean conscience. Sometimes our conscience speaks to us. Sometimes Holy Spirit speaks to us and brings something to mind. I've had people... Think of some experience in their past, all the way back into childhood, where it's revealed by the Spirit that the reason that this behavior is going on, or this rampant unbelief is going on, or this addiction is going on, is rooted deeply in the past. 
And this is something that, that counselors and psychologists have identified. But what we get to do is hear the Holy Spirit actually affirm how there are complex realities where our wires are crossed, even spiritually, with God. So we listen there, we speak there. Then as there's confession of sin, or as we hear conviction of sin, we get to actually speak confession of sin. When we sin, we are freely stepping into the domain of demons. This is a biblical theology that most of us go, what are you talking about? I had no idea. I thought sin was inevitable and that it was just kind of, well, God's got to forgive me anyway. And I thought that grace means there's no danger in sin anymore. That's not a New Testament teaching. 1 Corinthians actually says that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are participating with God, with the life of God. When we commit idolatry, we are participating with demons. It's the same word for fellowship. It's we have fellowship with God when we participate in the Lord's Supper. We're actually communing in the presence of God. But when we give ourselves over to idolatry and to sin, we are facilitating fellowship with evil spirits. That's just what the Bible says. And all the discomfort that I feel in telling you that and knowing what you probably feel in hearing that, we need to wrestle with God and the scriptures about and realize that we've been formed in a particular way to think that is an absurd thought by the world that is kind of architected by the enemy so that we wouldn't think that's a believable thought. Okay? So, when we confess sin, that's why 1 John 1, 8, and 9 give us a precious truth. When we walk into the light through confession, when we lay down our sin in agreeing with God, we are cleansed by the light of Jesus again. And every effect of the enemy is relinquished. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus covered in his mercy, and we are, um, how does it go? We are, if we confess our sins to one another, God is faithful and just, forgives us of sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a moral thing for the future only, but a lived reality thing for here and now in the life of the church. This is base level 101 Christian discipleship. And so, the invitation is to see our eyes kind of open and say, this is accessible to me. This might actually explain some of the things in my life that I don't need to live with anymore. So we see effects in our life. We listen in conversation with one another and with God. And then we respond to what we hear with speaking. Confession of sin. Um, we then get to even speak with the authority of Jesus over one another. We'll get into that in a moment. So I want to dive a little bit more into how to identify demonization. Okay? Um, particularly, two things we already covered. All right? We already talked about these two things that are words from Scripture. And I want to give you some handles. These two things are strongholds 
Um, 2 Corinthians 10 speaks about strongholds. A stronghold is a particular thought in your mind that has become unquestioned and yet is against the truth of God. In essence, a stronghold is a thought that you have that is contrary to God's truth that is so assumed to be true that you don't even question it anymore. So we sang a song earlier, God is so good. Yes, that's my singing voice. God is so good. And some of you were thinking, except to me. Depending on the severity of that, maybe it's just a temptation. Maybe it's something that you can easily say, no, that's not true. God is so good even to me. But for some of you, that feels like truth. That's a lie. It has become a stronghold if it is an unbelievable thing to hear God's truth spoken to you and to resist it. We need community, and even like in our discipleship groups, be able to say, hey guys, like I heard something the other day that I know is true from Scripture, and I just flat out don't believe it. I need your help in helping me to walk out what is true. That's a stronghold. So God is good to other people, or I am unlovable, or I am unworthy of affection, or I could never forgive them. These are strongholds, okay? And 2 Corinthians 10 makes very clear that they are a power that the enemy can hold and manipulate us. It's like we are literally caught on a chain and he can drag us. He can affect us. The one that we're going to spend a little bit, uh, dive into a little bit more particularly are footholds, all right? Ephesians 4 says really plainly, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give, no, give the devil no opportunity. That word opportunity that says anger can become an, op, uh, a, an opportunity to the devil for is the word topos. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's where we get topography from. It's as though we literally, by unrepentant sin, give the enemy a place that he can latch onto like a climber. Okay? He can climb onto our life, weigh us down, drag us down into his domain. Common footholds. This is where the spiritual affects the mental, emotional, physical, and relational. Common footholds. Pride and rebellion. First uh, Peter 5, 5 through 8 says this, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Without question, the quickest way into the power of demons is through pride. It's as though you are jumping headlong into his mouth and you don't even know it, and that's why it's the worst. Um, I have seen more people walking in arrogance and pride towards God or community or leaders that God has appointed in the church to shepherd and care for them. Um, I've seen pride be the worst possible scenario that the enemy has used. Because here's what happens. When you start to confront or call out, they resist you, and if you keep pressing in, they leave. 
They just figure, this place is not of God. I know what is of God, therefore I need to find a new place. So an example, um, at a church I worked at in the past, there was a leader of a small group who was coming across to people as pretty arrogant. He had a lot of answers and not a lot of vulnerability or humility. When I started to press in and ask him some questions in a coaching meeting, he said, yeah, you know, the reason I don't need to be very vulnerable with people is because I know the whole Bible, and I'm pretty self-aware, so I just kind of apply the Bible to my own life, and I don't need other people to do it. To be honest, that's verbalizing the way a lot of us live before we think, like, that's crazy. We read the Bible, diagnose our own problems, pray to God, and then fix them and never walk in vulnerability together. I want to warn all of us, humility and community protects us from the We need to daily resurrender ourselves to Jesus through things like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom come today. Use me however you want to use me. Pride, number one way, and we don't even know it, to uh, create footholds in your life. Second one is unforgiveness and anger. This is the one I see the most often because when we start engaging with it, people stick around and we can start to see that there's unforgiveness under the surface. The only sin that Jesus covers in the Lord's Prayer, think about this, I heard this the other day and it blew my mind. The only sin that Jesus talks about in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as others, uh, forgive us our sins, give us our debts, as we forgive those who have sinned or are indebted or trespass against us in various versions. Forgiveness is at the heart of the good news that we can be reconciled to God. When people hurt or wrong us and we refuse to forgive them, it's not a little thing. It's kind of like cosmic lived blasphemy by saying, I've been forgiven of so much. I've been forgiven of all things. I can't forgive you of this one thing. It is a way that we give permission to the enemy into our life by refusing to say, God, as painful as it is and as angry as I am with them, I trust you, I forgive them, even though I don't feel like forgiving them. I do forgive them, and I refuse to take up permission to hold it against them. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that you don't feel anger, even hatred towards the other person. Forgiveness is a choice. And as we choose it, we don't give the enemy a foothold. When we don't choose it, we actually give permission to the enemy into our life. The number of times I've heard or seen someone who has physical affliction, that under the surface as we start to listen to the spirit and to the, themselves, that unforgiveness is causing physical affliction like arthritis in hands. That when they forgive and through the tears of repentance say, I relinquish, I forgive God, bless them, please help them, I'm sorry that I've been unforgiving. And then we say in the name of Jesus, be healed but hold the enemy it's in scripture the parable of the unforgiving servant Jesus says the king will say turn the unforgiving one over until every debt is paid 
right? I think what that means is you're walking out from under the protective covering of God and he will allow you to experience some torment from the enemy so that you would walk back into his presence forgiving and showing the light of God. Okay? So, now we're feeling some of the weight of like, oh my gosh, this is scary. A, I kind of want it to be scary, that sin would be scary. But then I want to say, the freedom isn't simply confessing and repenting with brothers and sisters. The freedom is there to be had. Unforgiveness and anger, common foothold. Third one, sexual sin. Okay, while all sin is equally wrong in the church, and the church has done a poor job of shaming people who wrestle with particular sins, especially sexual sins, especially some kind of sexual sins, not all sins are equally bad, even though they're equally wrong. Hear the distinction there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that sexual sin is of a different order because we're actually sinning against our own bodies. That we're actually reaping something really bad in ourselves by our participation in sexual sin. And so things like addiction to pornography um, and other forms of sexual sin breed footholds for the enemy. I was sitting right over there several years ago meeting with a discipleship group, not my current one, so don't think like, oh, I know who's in his discipleship, oh my gosh. And a young man um, told me a story, told us a story about how he got up from a meeting he really wanted to be in and walked out and was telling himself, oh my gosh, why am I want to be here, what's going on? And he, he described it as, my body got up and walked out even though I wanted to be there. A very clear indicator of spiritual warfare is the disintegration of people, meaning disintegrated. My mind wanted one thing, but my body did something else. My emotion felt something, but my body did something else. So I said, hey, can we, can we ask the Lord about that? That sounds like there's something there that maybe he could speak to. And so as we prayed, um, he said, uh, there's something that I feel like the Lord brought up and I really don't want to talk about it. Okay, well, here's the hard choice is either you continue to live in the thing you're living in or walk out. And if you could trust us with some of this like precious vulnerability, we can pray. And so he confessed lust. He confessed sleeping with a prostitute the other week. He said, have you confessed that to Jesus? He said, no. Okay, well, there's one thing I cannot do for you. We cannot do for you. And that's actually mediate your relationship with Jesus. And so as he sought to get near to God in confession, I'm praying, and as I open my eyes, because he's not talking, I see him going like this. And I said, sir, I'll put that in for his name, sir, you look like something's going on. Would you like to describe what you're feeling? And he said, I feel searing, burning pain in my back. Okay, another telltale sign of spiritual warfare is when people are trying to get near to the presence of God or walk in faithfulness, they're restricted in health. So that was a moment to speak because though we might have given Satan and demons permission um, in our lives, one thing that they don't have permission to do ever is withhold people from faithfulness to Jesus. And so Right out loud, in the name of Jesus, whatever is binding, sir, 
whatever is afflicting, sir, be gone from him. You do not have permission to keep him from Jesus. Went away. Confessed the sin. Prayed. Asked God to speak to him into that place of what was underneath the lust. And he experienced joy in Jesus. He had an experience. The time, uh, another sir was sharing with us what was going on. And we put a Bible in front of him and he couldn't open it. Literally, arm flexing, couldn't open it. Prayed, whatever is binding, sir. Uh, this is weird. Stephen, I used Stephen last time. I'll use it again. Different person. Not one of you, Stephen's. Uh, Whatever's binding, Stephen, you're bound in the name of Jesus. You cannot permit, uh, pre- prevent him from coming to God. Hand goes, wham, bam, slams into the ground. And then Stephen starts blinking, trying to read what he flipped to. And he's like, I, I see the words, but I can't read them. And again, in the name of Jesus, whatever is blinding or confusing Stephen, we bind you in the name of Jesus. You do not have permission um, to keep him from the presence of God. Started to read. Hopefully you see, this is, this is like simple. But there are some bits of wisdom understanding what Christian maturity and discipleship look like so that when there are roadblocks, we can see them and address them. See, we listen, and we speak. Sexual sin. A um, couple more. Um, depression and despair. This one's personal for me because depression is in my story. Both sides of my family are crippled with depression. Um, I understand thoroughly that when I say this, what I don't mean is all dis- depression is from God. All anxiety or, uh, is uh, spiritual warfare. All mental unhealth is spiritual warfare. In fact, oftentimes there are elements of mental health that are just brain chemical imbalances that we're born with. Um, We should see counselors. We should get medications in the wisdom of community with scripture and a therapist. But you cannot have a demon counseled out of your life. That's really important in our day because I want to do two things. I want to uphold the importance of counseling and therapy. I've been to a counselor and seen a therapist. But we need to realize that they are not able to counsel um, evil spirits out of our life. They can maybe help us address some footholds, but that's not sufficient. Um, depression and despair. Sometimes um, we feel so beaten into the ground and low and weighed down that we can't even feel like we can get up. We have no hope whatsoever. And um, in my story, the way that this is manifested is particularly, and I dealt with this last week, When I try and wean myself off of caffeine, I feel like in my body, depression. Feel in my mind the fog, some of the natural things, but I had gotten past the withdrawals. And quite frankly, I'm wrestling with what's happening to me and if there's spiritual warfare going on in the midst of it. I want to be aware if it is going on. And I'm asking people around me, hey, can you pray? Like, I don't know. I know that I can live without coffee and caffeine. Why does it feel like I can when I try? So, even something like depression, anxiety, and despair can be indicative of spiritual warfare in our life. And so, we draw near to people, we ask them if we can pray for them, we pray for healing of the despair, and we listen um, to say, Lord, is there anything else going on? 
Um, we know that it can just be simple and mental health, but we also understand that sometimes it's more complicated than that. We listen for conscience. We listen for spirit. We examine the word. And then we respond. Um, an obvious one next is witchcraft and the occult. Okay? I don't know if you know this, but just around the corner, there's a fortune teller. You drive down Westwood Boulevard, there's crystal shops and all sorts of things. Um, what's happening there is the seeking of power higher than us to manipulate our environment around us or see the future apart from trusting God. Scripture's really clear that pursuing uh, witchcraft and the occult is actually partnering with demons. I don't know how more overt you can get in partnering with demons and experiencing the demonic, okay? So a young man last year came in as part of the community, told a story about how he got out of the occult. He was a part of a group that was meeting and doing these spiritual practices to try and um, obtain power and words of prophecy through um, these spiritual exercises that they were doing. And he actually saw that he could even heal people. It wasn't through Jesus. Seeking power outside of God. And what he started to experience was the demands that are never-ending of this evil spirit. He started to feel some panic. And then he met one of his friends who's a Christian and shared the gospel with him, prayed. And the guy saw, in his words, saw brightness and heard the voice of Jesus telling him, I am the real Lord, come to me. He met Jesus and was freed from uh, the demonic and the occult. Very clear connection in and, and footholds to the enemy. All right, last one. Um, jealousy, violence, and self-harm. Okay? Jealousy, violence, and self-harm. Um, jealousy is like an emotional response of violence. Tangible violence is demonic. Self-harm, for those of us who were created for life and the temptation towards it, and again, there is no shame in the midst of our temptation and what we, done, what we have done. Um, the church is a waiting room for the doctor, needing the great physician to heal all of us, not the waiting room for a job, perform, or a, a job application to achieve our way into right standing with God. So I want to approach this with humility and mercy and while at the same time making very clear that where there are these things, they are from the evil one. They don't spontaneously come about from in, inside of an image bearer of God. They are lies and temptation from outside of humans. That's why uh, violence and murder was one of the first sins that was committed in the garden after sin entered the world, committed outside of the garden to be technically correct. Um, James 3.14 says, If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. It's a foothold, okay? The way that we deal with all of these is within community to share in the midst of vulnerability, to confess to the Lord these things as sin, even strongholds. Even if you think, God, you're not good. I can't believe that you're good, and I have all this evidence in my life that you're not good. 
that is still sinful. Because it's saying, your word's not true. My word is true. Form of pride. And I, I get that it's complicated in the lives of our story and our pain and our trauma and all of that. But here's why it matters. We need to say, Lord, I renounce the lie that I have believed. The thing that is us participating with the demonic needs to be laid down in order to be cleansed and no longer give a foothold to the